Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to continue to look at the uh, conversion of Saul, who is a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, and he will be radically transformed into a mighty apostle of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be looking at uh, his story and his conversion again in Acts chapter 9. So I'd like to begin reading actually in verse 1 to go over the section we read last time and then read all the way down through verse 20. And we're primarily going to camp on verse 15 this morning. So let me begin reading this passage. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And since I'm reading the inspired Word of God, please give careful attention to God's holy Word. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now several days, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. May God bless the reading of His Word. Well, last week we saw how 
Jesus initially revealed himself to Saul in this incredible conversion experience back in verse 4 by saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he began to communicate to Saul, even though he was in this uh, lost condition at this point, that Christ so identifies with His people. He is so united with His people that if you persecute them, you persecute Me personally. And He repeated that again when Saul said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We saw last week that this incredible truth of the unity of Jesus Christ with with His people made such an incredible impression upon the Apostle Paul that he emphasized our unity with Christ throughout his writings. It was one of his, his keynote themes, one of the great doctrines that Paul develops because this truth was so uh, deeply impressed upon him in his conversion experience that it made a profound impact upon his thinking, his writing, his theology, so that throughout Paul's writings we are in Christ, we are with Christ, we have been buried with Christ and raised with Christ and died with Christ and He lives in us and we are in Him and all these beautiful truths that speak of our unity with Jesus Christ. But there are other great truths that also came out in Saul's conversion experience. And another one of them that made a very profound effect upon him is the doctrine of election. As we read in verse 15, that he is a chosen vessel. He is chosen by God to be a special vessel for the use of God and for His glory and for His gospel. And it's this notion that Ananias heard from God, the Lord in a vision, he communicated that to Saul that made a profound impact upon him that God actually chose him to be not only saved, but to serve him in a very powerful way. Uh, This is a doctrine, again, that uh, I think he never got over. He never recovered from the notion that he, as a guilty, rebellious sinner, persecuting the people of God would be set upon by God's love and mercy and grace and saved and forgiven of all of His sins. I think that made such a profound impact upon Saul because he knows he doesn't deserve it. There is no one who deserves less the mercy of God, we might think, humanly speaking, than someone like Saul. He was so evil, he was so, so much, had a heart so full of hatred against Christ and against God's people, and yet he was shown mercy. And I think that had an incredible impact upon him. So what we're going to look at this morning is the second great truth that was revealed to Saul in his conversion experience about the doctrine of unconditional election. Let me begin by giving you a definition. It's in your notes on the definition of election. And uh, it goes something like this. That God before the foundation of the world chose certain individuals from among the fallen members of Adam's race to be the objects of His undeserved saving grace. 
His choice was not based upon any foreseen act or response on the part of those chosen, but was based solely on His own good pleasure and sovereign will. Now, the opposite teaching of this would be the Arminian view, to use that name, those who believe in free will. And they say, no, no, no. God chooses those who first choose Him by their free will. And that would be the Arminian version. This is the opposite teaching. It's that God chooses based on His sovereign grace and His election causes them at some point in time to come to faith. That is purely by God's own good pleasure. Now, obviously, I know this is a, a controversial doctrine. Uh, it's something that many good believers who love the Lord do not agree with. But I'm going to try to show you the profound impact it made on Paul's mind and how we see this percolating through his own letters and his own theology. Uh, this is a doctrine that uh, many have struggled with. R.C. Sproul, back when he was uh, struggling with this theology, he eventually wrote a book called Chosen by God, which you ought to read if you've never uh, read a book on God's doctrine of unconditional election. But he was wrestling with it. And, he, and it finally dawned on him, which he, which, which he wrote down on a piece of paper to guide him as he was wrestling through this doctrine, rejecting it, at the outset, but he wrote down, really exhorting himself, he said, you're required to believe, to preach, and to teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. And I think for many of us, because we're naturally inclined to the idea that I have a free will, I'm the one who chose God, that we have a tendency to read that into the Bible because that's our natural thinking for most of us. It certainly was mine. Uh, I, I certainly wrestled with this theology. But Sproul came to the conviction that he needs to study it and believe what the Bible says, not the, what he wants the Bible to say. That the Bible, He wanted the Bible to affirm free will. He wanted the Bible to affirm that salvation is our choice and then God just chooses us after we first choose Him. But he came to the realization that that was not being honest with Scripture. Even though this is a controversial doctrine, it is a very prominent doctrine. For example... Charles Spurgeon said, I do not hesitate to say that next to the doctrine of the crucifixion and the resurrection of our blessed Lord, no doctrine had such prominence in the early Christian church as the doctrine of the election of grace. So it's a very prominent doctrine. It's prominent in the Scriptures. It's prominent in church history. And it's, uh, it should be something that we all study and wrestle with. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, we are told specifically, again, that the Lord appeared to Ananias and said concerning Saul, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And what we'll see in these two verses is that Saul is chosen to be saved, Saul is chosen to serve, and Saul is chosen to suffer. 
And all three of these go together. We're going to look at the first one of these uh, today. Several things about uh, what we see in this uh, particular passage is that if you look back at uh, verse 11 and 12, the Lord has uh, appeared to Ananias and told him to go up to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he had seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So basically what the Lord is doing is he's giving Ananias, who is a believer, Christian, at Damascus, a vision to help break the ice, if you will, to introduce him to Saul. Saul is now blind. He's staying in the, in the home of, of uh, an individual, another uh, believer there in the area. And uh, so now Ananias is being told, you need to go to where this man Saul is. You need to lay hands on him, heal him of his blindness, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the vision is to help Ananias get over the hurdle of what he's about to do. Now this is the same thing with Peter later on in in the next chapter of Acts. Peter will need to get a vision from God before he goes to Cornelius, a Gentile, and minister to him. In a very similar way, Ananias needs a vision to help him to get over the idea that God is sending him to go minister to Saul. And Ananias in verse 13 and 14 is naturally hesitant. I mean, who wouldn't be reluctant and skeptical? Because as he says, there's been many reports have been circulating about Saul's cruelty. And you want me to go to him? And probably many of the Christians from Jerusalem have come up to Damascus and given reports about all the evil and all the persecution and the destruction that that Saul has brought on the church. Of his hatred and vicious pursuit and persecution of believers. And they know about his mission from Uh, to come to Damascus from those believers in Jerusalem that have probably preceded him. So all the Christians there in Damascus are in high alert. I don't know if you watch any of those nature movies, but those meerkats in Africa, you know, when you get about ten of them and they all stand up like this, or actually their little paws up, and they're all on alert looking for a hawk or some predator that's nearby and all the Christians in Damascus are, are like all on alert I mean they have heard that Saul is on his way so they're all they're all really sensitive and looking out for him be like a a Jew in World War II living in Berlin and hearing that the Nazis are going house to house in search of any Jew and then arresting them never to be heard from again and here you're a Jew being told to go and 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 go out and find out a Nazi SS leader that's kind of what, what Ananias is being asked to do. You go to the, to the main persecutor of your people and you go and, and introduce yourself to him and minister to him. And it sounds like it's a suicide mission. It sounds like a, it's a mouse entering the cage of a hungry cat. And, and, and you know, Ananias probably was thinking, well, Lord, do you want me to lay my hands on him and heal why don't you just leave him blind for a little while longer and let me have an opportunity to escape. But he goes in obedience and has a wonderful ministry to Saul. But in order to help Ananias get over 
his natural hesitation to go and minister to this great persecutor, the guy who normally would have captured him immediately and dragged him back to Jerusalem to be put to death. Yet the Lord gives him this incredible message in verse 15 and 16 that no, he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So this information about Saul, that he has chosen to be saved, he has chosen to serve and chosen to suffer, is what gives Ananias the, the, the confidence and the boldness to go and minister to Saul. So what we learn from this is that uh, the Lord is going to overrule Ananias' protest because he has a plan for Saul. And that plan, first off, is he's a chosen instrument of mine. And that implies he is chosen to be saved. God is saving this man. He's going to transform his life. What we learn from this is really there's only one legitimate explanation for the radical transformation of Saul. And that is the sovereign grace of Almighty God. There's no way that you can explain this by an act of his free will or because he's having some kind of a crisis experience. There's only one explanation for the transformation and that is the sovereign, omnipotent power of God's grace. And remember last week, just consider this on a, on a number of levels. Consider uh, Saul's state of mind at this time. He's not a seeker. He's not open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the exact opposite, his heart is full of anger and hate. Jonathan Edwards tells us that the will of man is not free. The will of man is the servant to the heart of man. And whatever the character of the heart is, that's what the will will be inclined to do. The will is merely... The heart choosing what it wants. So that if the heart is bad, the will is bad. If the heart is depraved and corrupt, the will will always choose what is depraved and corrupt. The will is not free. It is the servant, the handmaiden of the heart. We have this notion that the will is an independent uh, faculty within our inner man, and it's not. It is, it is a servant to the heart. The will always chooses what the heart wants. And the heart will never go against its, its own desires unless it's forced to. So Paul's state of mind is that there's not in any sense here that his will is free. His will is a servant to his heart and his heart is calcified in its anger and hatred against Christ and against the church. He wants to punish them. He wants to hurt them. He wants to capture them and drag them back into prison. There is no sense in which his, his will could be understood to be free. In fact, in later on in Ephesians, one of his letters, he'll describe himself as being spiritually dead in his trespasses and sins. In Ephesians 2.5. So his own state of mind, there was nothing in there to cause him to want to freely accept Jesus Christ. God basically, you could almost say in an in a effectual way, 
forced himself upon, upon Saul and changed him from the inside out. The second thing I think that supports the idea of, of uh, God's grace being the only cause of Saul's salvation is that God selectively revealed himself only to Saul and not the other men who were with him. Remember last week, the other men that were with Saul, they saw the light, they heard the voice, but they didn't see Jesus and they didn't understand what the voice was saying. Only Saul did. Christ was speaking to him in Aramaic. For some reason, the others either didn't know Aramaic or they, didn't, they just were prevented from understanding it. But God was very, very selective. He revealed Himself only to Saul. Now, here's my question. If God loves everyone equally and wants to save everyone equally, why doesn't He give everyone an equal experience that He gave to Saul? Could Christ reveal Himself and give a Damascus road experience to every person on the planet? Of course He could. Why doesn't He? Why does God select one man even out of this group and hide His revelation from the others Only Saul saw Jesus. Only Saul heard the words of Jesus and understood it. The others didn't. They were specifically hidden from them. Why did God do that for one man and not for the others if He loves everybody equally? Why doesn't He appear miraculously to every sinner on the planet? He could do that, right? Nothing would stop Him from doing that. Why doesn't He do that if He loves everybody equally and wants to save everybody equally? It just doesn't make sense to me. So God's selective grace is another strong argument that that Saul's conversion is totally due to the grace of God. And then you read of Paul's own testimony about his conversion. He, He describes God's grace as arresting him in Philippians 3.12, as a light shining into the darkness of his light that he has no control over, the, the darkness of his heart that he has no control over in 2 Corinthians 4.6, of God's grace sweeping over him like a flood in 1 Timothy 1.14. So that Saul's own explanation of his conversion has nothing about, I chose of my own free will to believe in Jesus. no. God revealed Himself and changed me. He grabbed me. He laid hold of me. He arrested me. So all the glory goes to God and none to Him. Several other things that uh, Saul says about this grace. He says that it was actually planned to come to him while he was in his mother's womb. We read in Galatians 1.15, but when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, called me through His grace. So it's even while He's in His mother's womb that basically He was set apart by the grace of God. No free will decision there. Uh, Same thing with John the Baptist. John didn't have a decision whether he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, but he certainly was. God was sovereign in that. Same with Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. That God chose Saul as He chose Jeremiah. Even when they were in their mother's womb. He knew them. He consecrated them. He set them apart. 
But it even goes back further than that. Paul will say in other places that God's grace really for him was planned before time even began. In Ephesians 1.4, he says, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, so that the election of Saul and Jeremiah and all the believers of the church, that election, that choice actually was made before the foundation of the world. In 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul will say that the God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So this is selective grace. It's a selective purpose. And it was granted and planned before all eternity. We know that John later will write of this in Revelation 13.8. There are those who will follow the beast, the Antichrist and the beast. And there are those who dwell on the earth, will worship him, that is the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the, in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So that there are names written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. So really, this doctrine of election that Paul never recovered from, as he begins to write out in more detail in his letters and his writings that God had chosen him and just the marvel of God's grace, he would say was an election that actually took place before the foundation of the world. I love what Spurgeon says in his own humorous way. He says, I'm glad he chose me before time if he did it now, he might change his mind. We also find that um, in the writings of not only Paul, but in so many others, that certainly the teachings of our Lord, that God's election, His sovereign choice is unconditional, and it's His choice. God doesn't choose those who first choose Him. He chooses them first, and His grace enables them to believe and choose Him. So just think, look at what Jesus taught. He said in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now notice what He says here. All that the Father gives me. That's the elect. Those are the ones chosen from before the foundation of the world. The Father now gives them to the Son. And notice what it says. That the giving to the Son of the chosen ones results in them coming to Christ in faith. All that the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, election precedes their faith. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, now all that come to me are given to me by the Father. See, that would be like the Arminian view, the free will view. But that's not why He's saying the exact opposite. And notice that all who are given, they will come. Every one of them will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Their faith will be guaranteed and they will come. They will be irresistibly drawn by God. 
There's not a one that the Father chose from before the foundation of the world to be saved that will not come to faith in Christ. They will all come in faith to Jesus. And that's what, that's what Jesus Himself taught. Look at John 6.39. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, that would be the elect, the chosen ones from before the foundation of the world. I lose nothing. He'll lose none of them, but raise them up on the last day. So that your election guarantees your salvation. None who are given will ever be lost. Jesus taught that. And then you have in John 6.44, Jesus taught this. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus taught several things here. He taught, number one, universal inability. No one can come. This is due to the depravity of our own hearts. This is due to the fact that my will is a slave to my heart and my heart is unregenerate and dead in its trespasses and sins. My heart is evil by nature. My heart is rebellious by nature. I will worship myself as God. I don't care about what God says. And even religious people can be like this. But no one can come to me. You cannot come to me. No one can. You don't have the ability to. It's just that not no one will. It's no one can. The word can implies ability or the lack thereof. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now I have some some Arminian friends will say, oh, well, here's, here's the catch. It's true by nature. All of us are depraved. None of us can come. But you see, the Father draws everybody equally. And then we decide whether we want to believe in Jesus for salvation or not. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Look very carefully at the entire verse. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The resurrection of the righteous. So the one who is drawn is the one who Christ will raise up and be saved. So everyone that is drawn will be raised up. The Father who sent me will draw him and I will raise him up on the last day. So everyone that is drawn, Christ says, I will raise them up on the last day in the resurrection of the righteous in the context. So this is an effectual drawing of the Father. Everyone who is drawn, He doesn't draw everybody, but everyone who is drawn will come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus taught. He also taught in John chapter 15 to His disciples, you didn't choose Me, but I chose you. That's pretty clear. Some say, well, He's only talking about choosing them for discipleship. No, it involves salvation as well. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Now Judas was chosen too, but he was a devil from the beginning. He was chosen for a different purpose than the other 11 disciples. But notice, Jesus did the choosing. They did not choose Him. That's pretty clear. Christ is the one who chooses. In John 17.6, Jesus said in His high priestly prayer, He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So again, the elect, the ones the Father chose from before the foundation of the world, He gave them to Jesus, and Jesus manifested the Father's name to the men that God gave Him, notice, out of the world. 
In other words, they were chosen and given out of the world where they were in the world, in their unbelief, and God chose them out of the world, out of that state of rebellion, out of that state of unbelief. He chose them out of the world. So He didn't choose them because they first came to faith and came out of the world on their own, and then He chose them. No, He chose them to come out of the world. So again, it's His sovereign grace. And they all come to Him, and Jesus manifested the Father's name to them. Well, just look at what else uh, Luke says about this doctrine of election. Notice he says in Acts 13.48, describing the conversion of many, he says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Notice carefully what that's saying. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, 20 years ago, the Living Bible was very popular. And I'm sure many of y'all probably have a Living Bible. You ought to read the Living Bible in, uh, in this particular verse because uh, they insert their theology and they reverse the idea of what this verse is saying. In the Living Bible, it says, as many as believed in Him were appointed to eternal life. That would be the free will view. But that's not what Luke is writing about. As many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. It's those who are appointed, those who are chosen, those who were ordained. They're the ones that believed. They're the ones who came to faith. And then he gives a, a specific example of Lydia in Acts 16, verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What caused Lydia to respond to Paul preaching the gospel to her? Was it her free will? Certainly not indicated. What's indicated is the Lord changed her heart. The Lord opened her heart. And then suddenly she was able to respond to the gospel that Paul preached. And that's why Jeremiah 24, verse 7, had prophesied, I will give them a heart to know me. See, until the heart is changed, we will never know God. I don't want to know God. I want to live for myself. But when God gives them a heart, and He changes the heart, takes out the heart of stone, and gives them a heart of flesh, a living heart, spiritually alive, then they come to know Me. And then the will is liberated from its bondage to sin to choose Christ after the heart, the Master, is changed. Well now, just for a few verses on Paul's end of things, because this conversion experience where he learned that God chose him made a radical, powerful impact upon his own thinking. Look at what uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, will write later, later in Romans chapter 8, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And many people say, well, look here, the foreknowledge that Paul is talking about here is God before the foundation of the world, looking down through the ages of time and seeing, oh, Alan Connor, I see in in, uh, in 1972, He chooses me. 
So I will choose Him based upon my foreknowledge of that He's going to first choose me. And many people have that idea of foreknowledge. All I can tell you, if that's your view, uh, spend some time and do some research and study on this particular word because that's not what it means. Uh, God's foreknowledge is not His knowing in advance who will first choose Him. Now, He knows everything in advance because He's God, but that's not what the, the word is referring to. For in the Bible, knowledge is often used in a sense of personal intimacy and love as when Adam knew Eve, Genesis 4.1. And in the word foreknowledge, that's the meaning of the word knowledge there. So God's foreknowledge is not His knowledge in advance, but His loving individuals in advance. That's really the meaning of God's foreknowledge. And if you aren't sure about that, I just encourage you to get some good Bible dictionaries, do a little study on it, and I think you'll see that's what the scholars believe that word means. Of course, then we go to Romans 9. And this is uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are, 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 are kind of the, the, the doctoral thesis in many ways of the Apostle Paul on the doctrine of election. Again, that truth of God choosing him when he was such a violent aggressor and, and so bent on destroying the church and God chose him in grace and mercy, radically changed him and he never got over it again. And so you ought to read and carefully Romans 9, 10, and 11, but a few highlights out of that. He speaks of God's dealing with other redeemed in the Bible. Uh, Jacob and Esau in Romans 9, 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. In other words, not based upon anything in them. wasn't because Jacob was a better boy than Esau because they were still in the womb. They hadn't even been born. So it's not like they have a lot of good things and bad things to be evaluated. For they were twins, they were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. That's unconditional. It's not based upon anything that Jacob or Esau did. God just sovereignly chose to set His favor and blessing upon Jacob and not set it on Esau. We'll get into some of the difficulties of that in a moment. We read in Romans 9.16, so then it doesn't depend on the man who wills. It's not your free will. That's not what causes you to be saved. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So then He has mercy on whom He desires and He hardens whom He desires. It's God's sovereign grace. It's not because some are better. It's not because we're better. Not by any stretch of the means, by, by God's sovereign choice. Same thing in Romans 11. In the same way then, there's come to be at the present time a remnant. This is among the Jews. A remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. Now you can go back in the context, you may ask, well, what were they trying to obtain? Well, in the context of Romans, they're trying to attain a righteousness before God. And what he says is that those who are seeking it, they have not obtained it. They're still in their sins. 
but those who were chosen by God, they did obtain the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Notice Paul does not say that those who obtained it were chosen. It's not first they believed and received that righteousness by faith and then God chose them. No, it's the other way around. Those who were chosen obtained the righteousness by faith. The choosing determines the faith, not vice versa. And that shouldn't surprise us because the Bible teaches that faith is a gift of God. It's not a free will decision. In Romans 12.3, God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In Hebrews 12.2, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And the word author there implies the idea of source and origin of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the source. He's the origin and the perfecter of your faith. So that God gives faith. And if God gives faith, it cannot be the basis of God choosing us. That which is the effect of God's election, i.e. faith, cannot be the cause of it. Just think about it. Well, quickly... Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, Brethren, beloved by God, knowing His choice of you. For our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's the result of that effectual drawing of the Father. He says, you believers at Thessalonica, I want you to know God has chosen you. And the way you can know that is because you come to faith, because you experience the power of the Gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, and He gave you a full conviction of your sin and trust in Christ. That's God's work. You're chosen by God. Notice what he says to the Thessalonians in his second letter to them. He says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Notice He chose you for salvation, not because of your salvation. He chose you in order that He might save you. He didn't choose you before, because you first got saved by faith in Jesus as a result of your free will. And then He chose you. No. He chose you in order to save you, not because He saw that you were saved by your free will decision to believe in Jesus. It's very clear. At least to me. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, that even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and violent aggressor, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with what? What did God's grace in abundance bring to, to Paul? Faith and love. Faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. The result of his faith and love is not his free will. It's God's grace. That was the cause of it. 2 Timothy 2.10 Paul writes, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. In other words, Paul was motivated in evangelism because he believed that God's elect were out there. And he didn't know who they were, but he's going to preach the gospel to everybody because he knows that the, the chosen are out there when they hear the gospel at the right time the Father will draw them they'll come to faith in Christ. That was His motivation for evangelism 
was the doctrine of unconditional election. Well, how about some objections? There are a ton. I'm going to give you soundbite answers because we don't have enough time to go into any much detail. They say, well, if God has already chosen, He's going to be saved. Why evangelize? Well, I just read a good verse. Why? But God has told us that the church He gave the, the, the great commission to, that we're to go out and preach the gospel to all the world, make disciples of all the nations. You say, well, if He's only elected some, why don't we just preach the gospel to the elect? Well, we don't know who they are. God doesn't want us to know who they are. He says, so preach to everybody. So there's no problem at all with evangelism. And what encourages us again is that I know God's elect are out there. And the more we share the gospel, God is going to bring in the elect. We throw out the gospel net and the elect fish will swim into the net. And we can have the confidence and the trust that, uh, that that's how God saves them is through our personal witness to those who are out there. We preach the gospel to all men and Christ's sheep who are given ears to hear will hear His voice and follow Him. And then we know, well, they're of God's elect because they responded in faith. Some people say, well, election is not fair. It's not just. But we don't want fairness and we don't want justice because we're all guilty sinners. We're all criminals before God. I have sinned before God. I deserve to be punished. I'm talking about me. I have done things that I deserve only one thing and that's to be cast into hell. That's me. So there is none who want God to be just and fair. I don't want God to be fair with me because He'll cast me into the lake of fire. I want His mercy and mercy is free. Mercy is never an obligation that God has to give to anybody. So people say, well, election is not just. It's not fair. We'd, if God was just, everybody would go to hell. Every single one of us. We don't want God to be just and fair. We want His grace and mercy to forgive me of my sins because I deserve to go to hell. And thank God the good news of the Gospel provides that. Well, what about all the universal passages in the Bible? For God so loved the world. I think the best way to understand all these is in light of the New Covenant. That the new covenant was made with the house of Israel. The blessings came to the Jews, but it wasn't restricted to Israel. It's going to overflow into the Gentile nations. And whenever you find that Christ died for all men, or God loves the world, it's all kinds of men. It's sinners from all nations. Not every individual. How can you harmonize that with Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? But the universal passages are best understood as being both Jew and Gentile. All men. Not just Israel anymore, like the whole covenant was only for Israel and Gentiles who had proselytized, but the new covenant is for anybody, for every nation, tongue, and tribe, and people who believe can now enter into the blessings of Christ. It's all men. It's for everybody. That's the idea. Not every individual, but all kinds of people. Well, how about election makes God show partiality? Well, when you read those verses in the Bible, like in Romans 2.11, the partiality is always showing favoritism to someone based upon their wealth or 
uh, or some personal gain that you might get from them or from a bribe or from racism. But God doesn't have any of that when He chooses. It's unconditional. It's not based on partiality. Partiality is based upon some condition. Some hope of, of uh, benefit from that person. But that's not how, the, what motivates God. So it's not an issue of partiality at all. Well, let me just kind of wrap up with some practical issues of the doctrine of election. One of the great things with Paul's conversion is it teaches loud and clear that there is no sinner beyond God's reach. And that's the encouraging thing of our Gospel. I don't care if it's someone who's a mass murderer. I don't care who it is. God can save that person if He so wills to do it. There is no sinner that is so evil that has, been, has lived such a rebellious, wicked life that is beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace. If God can save a soul in His hardness and in His hatred, God can save anybody. There's hope for everybody. And that's why we need to keep praying for our friends and, and lost loved ones because God can still save them. There's, there's no mountain of sin that can prevent His grace from penetrating and changing them if He so chooses to do that. Well, one another question that's raised is, well, how do you know if you're among God's elect? Alan, you've talked about that God made the choice before the foundation of the world whom He will choose among all the sinful fallen race of Adam. He's going to choose certain ones to save. Well, how do I know I'm numbered among them? I'm not sure. I don't have the assurance of my salvation. How do I know that I'm among God's elect? Well, the point that uh, people wrestling with that question need to, to know is that the way you know if you're of God's elect is to acknowledge your sin, acknowledge the judgment that you deserve, and flee to Christ in faith. And if you do that and trust in Jesus alone to save you, that's what the elect do. And of course, it's a, it's a faith that perseveres. It's a faith that produces a, a level of fruit. But that's what the elect do. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. That's how you know whether you're of God's elect. And that faith is growing. And it's not perfect. It stumbles. But it gives forth a measure of fruit. It will persevere to the end by God's grace. You can know that you're of God's elect. If you're not sure, just come to Christ for salvation. I have a bird feeder in my backyard and I regularly put out bird seed in it. And the little birds around there, they don't stop and wonder. And I wonder if the guy that lives in that house putting out this, I wonder if he means that for me or not. I wonder if, if it's okay for me to go there and, and eat of that seed. They don't think that. They're hungry. They see the seed. And they go feed on the seed. And that's what a sinner needs to do. It really doesn't matter about the doctrine of election right now. Do you sense a hunger in your soul that you need to be forgiven? You want to go to heaven? You don't want to stand before God on the last day and be condemned for your sin? But you want to be forgiven? If you have a hunger in your soul to know the Lord, then the Gospel is the, is the bread of life offered to you. Come and feed. Come and eat the bread of life. Come and trust Christ alone. That's your responsibility. That's what you need to do. And finally, 
Well, election guarantees our glorification for those whom He predestined. He also called and whom He called. He also justified whom He justified. He also glorified. He began a good work and this will perfect. If you're among God's elect, you will end up in heaven in glory forever. And finally, on a practical level, what, what is the effect that election should have on us? Just as believers, those of us who by God's grace are numbered among God's elect, who have come to faith in the Lord, what, what kind of an effect should this have upon us? Well, it should produce a lot of humility and gratitude and love and holy service. I ought to produce humility. I ought to be constantly amazed. God, why did You choose me? I don't understand why You choose me. I certainly don't deserve it, Lord. I don't know why You chose me. See, a proud Calvinist is an oxymoron. And we all struggle with pride, I understand. But it ought to produce a deep humility within us and a gratitude that God would set His love on such an unworthy, hell-deserving sinner as me and save me from the judgment that I deserve. It ought to fill us with that gratitude and love and a holy service. Close with two things. For those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, the doctrine of election ought to produce worship. It ought to incline our heart to worship. So at the end of Romans 9, 10, and 11, this massive uh, exposition of the doctrine of unconditional election, Paul begins to sum it up by saying, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways! For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. And the doctrine of election ought to produce within us a a desire to worship God for saving me from my sin. In Ephesians 1, after Paul described the doctrine of election and predestination, he says all of this is to the praise of the glory of His grace. So that the practical effect of the doctrine of election, it ought to stir us in our worship of God because we are here because God's love and and sovereign mercy has been extended to us for no other reason. Otherwise, we'd be sleeping in or out on the golf course or someplace else. But we are here because of what God has done. And it ought to stimulate our worship for God in light of His mercy and grace to us. And lastly, it ought to Make us commit ourselves to live for Him. So right after Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul begins in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, the mercies of His electing grace and love that has saved you, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, because God in His mercy has chosen me and saved me when I do not deserve it, I ought to daily offer myself to Christ as a living and a holy sacrifice. Oh Lord, I want to live for You today. Oh God, use me for Your kingdom today. Lord, help me to live for You and not just for my own stinking selfish desires today. And that is the response of those who truly get the the roots of God's unconditional electing grace down into their hearts. That's how we should respond. 
in dedication, consecration, in service to the great God who loved us and set His, His affections upon us. Well, this radically changed Saul. He wrote about it throughout his letters. And it's a truth that the church needs to know and needs to study because it's, it's incredibly profitable and incredibly sanctifying. And may God use it that way in our hearts as well. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for again the opportunity to see just the outworking of Your sovereign, unconditional, electing grace upon this great enemy of the Gospel, Saul of Tarsus. And Father, we thank You that if Your grace can save someone like him, then Your grace can save any sinner. And oh dear God, may the preciousness and the sweetness of this truth encourage all kinds of sinners to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe not even worrying about the doctrine of election, but to know that they are sinners before a holy God. And there is only one who can forgive them and give them the hope of glory. And that's Jesus Christ. So oh God, would You open their hearts. Would You grant them faith. And draw them effectually into the loving, embracing arms of Jesus Christ. That they might be forgiven and given the, the great gift of everlasting life. For those of us who have received it, O oh God, receive our worship and our praise. And stir our hearts to live for You since You lived and died for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.